Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you space burgers out there. Come on in, nestle comfortably in the confines of a safe little enclave tucked deep in the furthest regions of our known universe. Make yourself comfortable, escape all the worries of the world out there, and let's get into some chatting. Before we do, a couple quick announcements. One, um, my animated stand-up special One-Headed Beast is available to stream on Amazon Prime, so if you subscribe to The Beast, or one of the many beasts, you can see it there. So, give it a look. And uh, if you rate or review it or anything like that, let me know, and I'll send you whatever you'd like. A free DVD copy of it, a free Space Cave sticker, let me know. The logo's different for the Space Cave now. If you haven't checked that out, I don't know how that would be possible. You're listening to the show, it changed a little while ago. Uh, secondly, I'm doing some live shows starting very soon, uh, July 25th. This is the year 2019, as we refer to it as such in, uh, most of the, the earth. I'll be in Houston, Texas on the 25th and then Austin and then Denver would love to sell some more tickets to Denver. It's a pretty big venue. Uh, I'd love to see you there. If you live in Denver, <laughs> Jay's old girl would love to see you. Uh, it's a bug theater. It's gorgeous, and tickets are only 10 bucks ahead of time. They're a little bit more at the door. So if you're in Denver on August 3rd, come on out, see a show. You can get tickets. From there, it goes to like San Francisco and Sacramento, Portland, Minneapolis, Boise, Idaho, handful of places. Check out davidhuntsberger.com slash shows, and uh, hopefully come out and say hi. And if you mention you're a space burger, I'll give you something. Because, uh, you know, not a ton of people listen to this show, but those that do... You're a nice group, so come say hello. Okay, let's get into some hardcore chatting. This is part two. This is why you're back. The wonderful, the lovely and charming. Uh, she really loves what she does, and it shows in the way she talks about it, the way she's excited about it, the way she prepares in her free time. She reads uh, books about, and I'll share a link to the the PBS story that's referenced, I believe, in this part of the chat. And uh, But yeah, after it ended... Uh, she just happened to be reading a book and she was like, oh, here's the stuff we talked about. And so I got to read a little bit more about parts of the brain and how they process trauma and things like that. I don't know that I fully comprehended it well enough to regurgitate it, but when you hear it in context with the chat, see if you can uh, seek it out a little bit because it is fascinating. And I like that as humans, we're progressing in what we know about these things. This will make more sense when you listen to the chat. So let's get to it with more Lining Kugel's Summer Shandy on Rebecca's side. I was having some of the... Uh, Danger Cremail. So enjoy. And, and uh, oh, the D- Castle Danger is a brewery in Duluth. Check it out if you're ever in the area. Delicious. All the beers I had there, thoroughly enjoyed. I'm going to try to get them to maybe send us some to sample more on this show. Okay, here's part two with Rebecca Oaks. So we left off um, talking about some cool terms, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, yes. the trying to understand the brain and how it functions and then there's this kid when I was in second grade who was I mean you know when you're a kid you only know that kid's a good kid and Mm -hmm. this kid ooh they like sneak gum from time to time (laughs) or they you know well whatever pass notes whatever it is I'm trying to think when you're like first or second grade where it's the the bad behaviors are minimal you know Mm -hmm. like doing a little hand signal like look over here and then people and then hey you know (laughs) this kid would get up and yell he would curse out the teacher he'd run out of the classroom and I remember one time she took off after him out of the classroom and he wore these big boots which was weird for a second grader he was Uh tiny he was a little kid blonde hair big glasses and probably in hindsight he was either I don't know if kids can really be like bipolar but you know when they're just hyperactive ADD or something but he started calling her a bitch and then she's holding him at arm's distance, like, and Jimmy, I think I can say his name. The chances of this ever being traced back to him. And Jimmy, God bless you, I hope you, things have turned around for you. But she's holding him, and he's, like, openly kicking her in the shins and trying. And then 
I think she let him go and he just raced off and she kind of limped back but none of us left the classroom because I'm assuming we've been told to and just stood there and like watch this like he's in a lot of trouble that's what we can think it's like but as a child you don't have like oh poor Jimmy god he's got a lot going on like is this stuff is this a representation of things going on at home is he sort of wired up to react negatively what is this in my opinion that's probably a trauma response really I okay so the unfortunate thing is that trauma can look like so many different things and it can get misdiagnosed frequently Mm -hmm. so like mood swings is one of them, which I think is why a lot of kids get misdiagnosed with bipolar. Because if you don't really have a good understanding of trauma Mm -hmm. or the population, that it's not just veterans and people that have been, you know, like sexually abused or things like that, that it can be, well, you were taken away from your primary caregiver. You didn't know you were going somewhere safe. And so you were freaking out because you didn't have your person with you. Yeah. And then nobody ever explained it to you. And so now you freak out when people leave you. Yeah. Um, so I think trauma symptoms can look like ADHD, they can look like anxiety, they can, or, I mean, yeah, it can look like sensory processing difficulties. There's a lot of overlap, really, with with a lot of the, like, DSM-5 diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't understand trauma and you don't take a good developmental history, there's a high likelihood that if they have experienced trauma, they're getting misdiagnosed. Huh. And, I mean, do, are there ever times where you just openly ask a child? I mean, are they, because the trauma maybe oftentimes comes with the, don't you talk about this, or mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about it, can you just blatantly in a session ask them, like, hey, have you been harmed? Have you been yelled I'm, at? Part of my job is to do that in the very beginning, um, and I do. But you don't always get accurate answers, which just makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of times, whoever is bringing them in, the primary caregiver or that kind of a thing, is the one giving you the information or the CHIPS petition, whatever extra info you have. Mm-hmm. And so that is part of the difficulty because that caregiver might not give you all of the correct information. And so you may only have parts of it. And then it's like, why are these things like continuing like we know it's trauma but this is like huge so what else is going on but a lot of times if they're not telling you all the information they may not continue with you anyhow Mm -hmm. and so then it's like I never got to find out what was happening with that but I know something was happening with that yeah do you ever have a kid like Jimmy and you go through the whole progression to where you understand the root of it Mm -hmm. get to establishing behaviors and or you know, uh, recognizing triggers so that, mm-hmm. hey, when this happens, let's start doing this. Mm-hmm. And what, what would those be? Like, hey, hold a little rabbit's foot and rub it in your hand. Or what would you tell someone like that kid? Uh, I think it, it would depend. Um, like, the primary thing would be, like, to get him to, like, relax so that it's not his amygdala thinking, so that it's his prefrontal cortex, like, making decisions. Because it sounds like... When he ran from the classroom, it sounds like a fight, flight, freeze response. And also, when kids start, and I don't know if it was randomly, but it sounded like randomly yelling like, bitch, or you're stupid, or whatever. Yeah. That can be reenactment, or kids can, like adults, can dissociate, or have flashbacks and things like that, where they may appear to be in control of their body but actually they're reenacting something that happened before really yes so they go into kind of not zombie mode but not like zombie autopilot. mode but like yeah mm-hmm. Whoa. and so like the kicking i'm betting he likely didn't even realize he was kicking her if i mean i remember i mean i can still picture myself at the door yeah and see the playground and it felt like 10 miles you know you're mm-hmm. like the recess in the playground is yep. just this big open area and I, yeah, I can still see it, and like it did feel like that. Yeah, and it's so weird when it happens because mm-hmm. it doesn't have. We don't frequently look for it because it's usually like, "Why are you kicking me, you idiot?" Okay, go to the <laughs> principal. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Because, yeah, kicking is bad. And it's understanding where those behaviors are coming from. Um, whereas it's like, he's not necessarily kicking her be- and calling her a bitch because he doesn't like her. Mm-hmm. It could be that he's imagining like that one trigger that nobody even knows what it is. He probably doesn't even know what it is. Made him run out of the room. And then when she started chasing him and, did you say grabbed him? Oh, yeah, I was going to bring this up in the last episode. I worked at a daycare where this kid, uh, I walked outside and one of the other employees there was holding this child and he was kicking and, like, he was laying kind of on his side and kicking his legs, like, bicycling. And she goes, can you hold him? I'm going to run and grab so-and-so, like, the coordinator. And I go, yeah. And I hold him by the wrist Uh and he looks up at me, still bicycling his feet and goes, get your damn hands off me <laughs> which is and I like you were just talking about yeah. I, in my mind I was like oh that's his dad mm-hmm. for whatever reason like that's a very like yes. why would a nine year old say that yep. and then the coordinator comes outside and she goes oh my god let, let him go and I go really she goes yes and I let go of his wrist he hops up sprints to the fence jumps over it leaves the facility mm-hmm. and I go that's what I thought was going to happen she yep. goes you gotta wrap him up you, you can't hold him by the wrist because if he gets bruised, his parents could sue us. And I was like, I think they'll be more frustrated if he's hit by a car <laughs> outside the facility. Yeah. But I understood, like, the legalities of it and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think she did run after him. I don't remember. I remember her kind of having her hands on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And then him, that's where he was close enough to, like, kick her and stuff. She was yeah. trying to kind of hold him away but also keep him. Right. So, yeah, maybe he would have had thumb bruises on his shoulders or something. I don't know. Possibly. I mean, there are ways to be trained in different ways to hold children so that, like, they are, like, not able to harm you or themselves. Um, And I think I was trained in that when I worked at the crisis shelter. I never had to use it. And um, I think that... Sometimes it's needed. However, I think you have to be careful with it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're somebody that doesn't know the kid. Yeah. Um, and are just, like, you have no history with the child. And you're just like, oh, I need to save him from hurting himself. But his mom's right there. Like, yeah. it, it's a tough thing because if you don't understand the context you can actually screw up the situation a lot worse Mm -hmm. and potentially depending on their trauma history if there is one re-traumatize and that's not helpful either yeah this i mean i don't know if this is an answerable question it's more of just like an opinion i guess where adults who say they are a child and you go through this and you learn how to get in touch with okay what's setting me off why do i feel like this you know if someone goes through a a childhood that's relatively uneventful and they become who they are and they feel like, well, I'm just normal. Everything's just kind of been okay. Maybe they never have to process that. Whereas, or maybe we're a society where everyone is constantly going, this is how this made me feel. Why do I feel this way? Is mm-hmm. someone to blame? Do I do that too much? You know, like mm-hmm. where are they getting into how much of a victim they are and or how much they're inescapably themselves or a million different varieties do you think it's useful, like, some of these children that, that do come out of this, are do they have the capacity later on in life to be like, oh, well, now I've been doing this so long, understanding this was a trigger, or this is why I felt this way? I think it depends. Um, if you don't have, like, a caregiver early on that pays attention to you and gives you, I mean, like, meets your emotional and physical needs... Mm-hmm. There are so many pieces that you're not getting that then lead to emotional regulation capacities, cognitive development, um, occupational or sensory stuff. Like we build ourselves off of relationships. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, then it starts to look like, oh, well, I think he has a low IQ. You can check it. He may have a low IQ. However, a lot of times, if you have a good developmental history and you know that 
he had parents that, you know, used substances and would leave him for long periods of time, it's more likely than not he's below in his social-emotional functioning, which then affects his ability to learn. Mm -hmm. And so it might not be a low IQ as much as it is working on him having safe relationships with other people and understanding how to trust other people. Mm -hmm. And then once you can work on that, then be able to learn. Because if you're in your fight, flight, freeze all the time, you're, or your amygdala, I guess, in fight, flight, freeze, you're not able to use your prefrontal cortex. So it's not like you're gonna be learning math. It's like you're sitting in your classroom and you're looking around and you're like, okay, I have to be hyper vigilant. Like I need to know where everybody is at the same time. Like this is how I live. You can't just switch it on and off when you go from home to school. Yeah. And so that's part of the problem too is then if they get diagnosed as ADHD or things like that, then then um, depending on if they're given medication or whatever, sometimes the medication can be completely wrong mm-hmm. if they're di- misdiagnosed, and then and then you get behaviors that are just like it, they don't make sense at all. Yeah, but you're still chasing it, trying to find, well, we did yeah. ADD or ADHD. We thought it was this, but yeah. this behavior is still persisting. Yeah. Are you in favor of, like, let's strip it down and not medicate just yet? Let's really figure out what's triggering these behaviors? Yeah, I think it's hard for me to say because I don't prescribe. Right, okay. Um, so that's not my lane. So I prefer okay. for that. Yeah. But um, like if parents are like, well, I'm thinking about medication. And I'm like, okay, well, you could talk to your primary care physician. And if they're not willing to prescribe, then they can maybe refer you to a psychiatrist or that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are times where I'm like, hey, your anxiety is really high. Must be hard to do. I mean, this is with adults. Like must be hard to do everyday tasks. Medication might help with that. What do you think? But if they're like, no... I can't, you know, force them and I can't necessarily explain how beneficial it will be because that's not my background. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, yeah, I think depending on, I I think there are just so many things that go into it. But having a person prescribing that understands trauma would be good. And then if the trauma was actually reported, that would also be good. But I think that's a very, at least um, what you just said, uh, like that's a very judicious way to say it. That, you know, like one, it's outside of your lane a little bit. Two, yeah. you know, I, I mean, these type of subjects seem to elicit the most responses of, hey, I'm in this field and mm-hmm. this was inaccurate, or here's what we do. Right. Or I think what you spoke of. You know, the last part of it um, ties into your history, which we've kind of Mm -hmm. tickled a little bit or teased. But you have, like, talking about this, knowing, you know, early on, like, this is what I want to do. Does that kind of stem from getting that help? You know, because you, as a child, like, didn't have, you know, parents that were violent to each other or on substances or anything like that. And it was relatively, it was not necessarily an anomaly, but, like, how many children are in that space that you were in where it was just basically mental illness it's hard i don't get many cases that aren't somehow related to trauma Mm -hmm. um and so but i know that i know they're there because i was one of them obviously but um i think a certain amount of them like they're out there and I think they're probably less common than than um, cases where it's a where it's the trauma, and then that's leading to anxiety or depression. Yeah, yeah. For yours to, I mean, like saying that you don't see it in the same way, like. Could you describe it? See, describe like yourself coming in. You know, what were you feeling at the time? What age was it starting? How would I remember one time we recently we were talking and you were saying like when a child is going through something, you kind of try to step them. And I feel like maybe your supervisors, yeah, we're Mm -hmm. we're kind of like, hey, don't you know, we don't we don't really want to focus on that. But I thought it was so interesting to like try to describe what you're feeling right now. Yeah. Um. 
So I think one thing is that I was fortunate enough to have parents that were emotionally, we call it attuned, Mm -hmm. um, attuned to me, paid attention to me, had parents that were able to provide that for them. And so intuitively they knew how to parent Mm -hmm. and how to be attuned and pay attention and do the baby talk because that's actually very important for the, (laughs) oh, I'm changing your diaper and oh, you don't like it. You're so mad, but you're going to feel better in two minutes. And oh, look, now you're happy. (laughs) Like that stuff is actually really important to... I'm changing your diaper, Stephen. (laughs) You will feel better. That's not good? Well, I think... You've soiled your diaper. Neither mad nor proud of you. It's more than narrating. Because then a child learns that they have, like, that you're separate from them. Mm -hmm. Um, And without, like, that narration and things like that, that doesn't develop. Like, that ability to mentalize and reflect on stuff... Mm it's more concrete without like that narrative and stuff like that. But anyhow, um, so I had parents that were able to do that. And so if I had been a child that was born in a relatively stressful, like poverty, um, stressful situation where there was, you know, domestic violence or, substance use or things like that, I wouldn't be here today, mm-hmm. in in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I mean they were I, really... it's unlikely that I would be here today. It's And so, basically, they gave me a really stable foundation so that when my anxiety was just, like, too much, I had people that I could trust. And it was them mm-hmm. instead of not having anyone. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we, you're like nine the kind of first time that it's becoming probably younger, much no, younger? Younger. I would say, I remember when I was four or five, like when the preschool carpool, like we did carpool in the mornings. My mom could not drive in the morning because I would not separate from her to go to preschool. <laughs> so Don had to be the morning person with me and Linnea. And I think Carl Olson was there too. Anyway, um, so we drove to preschool. And so like, because Don was the driver instead, it just took more time for my mom to like rip me off of her and like. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just sobbing. Like, I don't want to yes, go. I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. I want to stay home. Like all of that stuff. And then as we drive away, I'm able to like regulate and actually have a good day at preschool. So she would do pickups and it would be fantastic. But, like, that, like, overwhelming anxiety of, like, oh, my gosh, I can't leave my mom. I can't leave my mom or my dad, depending, you know, on the situation. Like, that just, like, overwhelming panic of, like, ah, I have no one. <laughs> and then getting to school and being, like, but I do have people here. Like, mm-hmm. these are good people, too. But just that, like, additional, like, ah, no. <laughs> um, so, I, I was young. Um, I think... I think I probably had major depressive episodes prior to when I was actually diagnosed. Yeah. Um, wow. Like you're talking like six or seven? Um, definitely like eight or nine when I was in third grade. What do you think that, did you, I mean, this is too big of a question, but like we're just this collection of cells and that the, the, the idea that we have consciousness in itself is bizarre. Yes. But does it give you some thought and like, reincarnation or something like that that you would you would be experienced to hear and go I can't do it. I just it's too much this is you know so you're this little thing inside your body is freaking out just like no <laughs> just hang off my mom right. don't make me separate yes um so yeah I think it's really actually quite confusing because for a long time people were like nature versus nurture nature versus nurture which is it well you know I had the nurture, mm-hmm. and so, like, then the only thing really that we could figure was that I won the genetic lottery, and <laughs> from both sides of the family came down. Actually, like, both my mom's 
parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and my dad's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, like back far uh-huh. had anxiety. And so it was kind of like, well, lucky you. Boom, the double dose. Right. And so, but now they're starting to talk about like epigenetics and stuff. Yeah. And so epigenetics basically that you can like overcome your genes. And I don't know that for me, I was able to do that because it's just so many years of, I I don't know, of significant and like disabling anxiety, I guess. Because you got to where you weren't eating and you didn't want to go do anything. Yeah. Pretty like... Starting to really affect who you were as a human being and your ability to function. Well, and it was most for me in the beginning, they told me it's gonna like we may never know whether the depression led to the anxiety or the anxiety led to the depression. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. You can't tell me anything. (laughs) Great. What (laughs) are you good for? Um, And so, but then uh, later, I don't even know when I started to realize like when I would get overly anxious, then I would start to feel depressed because I was anxious about everything and didn't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so of course you're going to be depressed that you can't do things like other kids can. Yeah. And that's where I like the, oh, my life sucks. It won't get any better ever because I got this anxiety and it's never going to get any better. I'm never going to be able to do stuff like typical people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, for me, what I figured out, like what it is. Yeah. I think of sometimes raising a child with dwarfism. Do you ever find yourself just imagining, like, what would this be like? What would this be like? And it's a scenario that I've more than once been like, I just like when people that are dealt a hand that is looked at as unconventional and or from afar potentially a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And the parents just being like, hey, man, we're all kind of born into this in whatever shape we come out as. Yep. you got to make the best of it. You could apply that to any child. Mm-hmm. And yet when you're saying it to a child with dwarfism, it feels like I'm really trying to encourage you because you could mm-hmm. fall prey to being depressed because you can't reach as high as the other kids or right. run as fast or play the same sports. Mm-hmm. And yet when they later on in life do well and go, oh, I credit my parents, then we always wonder, was this just you were just destined to be positive and have a good spirit or was it your parents? So it is that nature versus nurture thing. Mm-hmm. It likely seems like both, I suppose, but... It sounds like yours, like, was a... It was inescapable that these things were going to happen. I... Well, and it's hard to know. But it's also hard to imagine my life in a different way. Mm-hmm. So even if it was escapable, maybe in the past it would have been like, God, pick that way! Like, that road! Over there! That one! That's the better one! But, you know, I can't say that my life is sublimely horrible and so you know like at times yes obviously it's been not so great but did you feel like you go back and did it feel like being a prisoner did you feel like there was a voice and also you um i mean the way i sometimes talk about it is like your anxious brain and your typical brain Mm -hmm. and the anxious brain is like you need to be worried about throwing up. And, you know, a typical brain would be like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> you didn't need... What? <laughs> what did you just say? What? Where did that come from? What? That's ridiculous. <laughs> but your anxious brain is like, ooh, yeah, you do. You need to be worried about that. Why aren't you worrying about that? Hurry yeah. up and get on that right now. <laughs> and then it's like, well, and now my stomach hurts. Well, of course, for me, my stomach hurt because I had anxiety and I was, like, thinking about it. But... But then it's like, yeah, think about that. Keep thinking about it, won't you? No, you got to keep thinking about it. Otherwise, it might happen. And then yeah. it just, you know, it gets ingrained. And your typical brain's like, what? Come on. I was screaming. <laughs> I was. I was trying. But, like, the anxious brain is just like, ha, 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 ha. I'm going to make you think about and ruminate on this so much that it's going to ruin your life. So then OCD ties into that a little bit, too. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I had... So for me, I had obsessive thoughts about throwing up. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, I was like, oh my God, if I throw up without my parents around, that's going to be the most horrible thing in the world. Yeah. And so I'm just not going to eat breakfast or lunch at school and I'll just eat 
after school, which you cannot eat nearly as many calories just plain <laughs> after school, yeah. which is how I ended up in the hospital. But then it was, it was those repetitive thoughts of, oh my God, I'm going to throw up. Like yeah. my stomach hurts. Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. And conquering and challenging those and being like, well, how many times in your life have you thrown up? Like my sister is a, far more frequent puker than I am. Like, <laughs> yeah. basically anything. Like, yep, she's thrown up. Me? Like, I almost never throw I could count on one hand the number of times I have, like, had the stomach flu and vomited. Yeah. Not including when I was a baby and can't remember. But, like, so being able to be like, what is the likelihood of you actually throwing up? But being able to get to that place, again, means not being in your amygdala in your fight flight freeze mm -hmm. and you're like well i'll just solve it however i can and i'm just not going to eat anything it's like being able to think about it and be like wow that's a really dumb thing to worry about like what I, I need to work on not worrying about that anymore yeah i felt like i was as a kid dealing with some ocd-ish type things and i just quietly went about and i wonder how many people do that where just kind of me I felt like it was just me alone with my brain and I could as time went on there were things that I think back now and go oh yeah I used to always think about that mm -hmm. with symmetry and certain I would always be stepping over things in my mind connecting mm -hmm. two points and stepping over them and what and as it was happening obsessively being like I hope this goes away and now yeah. I think about it and go oh I don't even th I don't really think about that uh-huh how did I was it just by virtue of time or was I pretty good at being like, oh, whenever I start thinking about that, let's think about sports or let's try to think about something else to let's correct our minds. And like our bodies have this way. So there was this thing in optogenetics years ago, our vagus nerve, which runs a yep. vagus nerve you know, yep. along the neck. We're going to attach this little capsule to it. And then you could connect that to say like a smartphone or mm -hmm. some sort of diagnostic device where you could see. So we, only know, say, like, our pancreas is hurting when it hurts. But right. It might have been sending signals for a few days. Right. The vagus nerve would have got those ahead of time. Right. We could monitor the body through some sort of auditing from a third-party thing. Uh -huh. That voice you're talking about, there is, as far as we know, no way that someone could attach a needle to your brain no. and be like, oh, I'm hearing it. Yeah. Okay, let's <laughs> have a conversation with it. No. But that would be, that's essentially what you are now. Yeah. And... Yeah, you just get really really because in the beginning I was like, what? No, it just takes over. Like, there's no way I can mess with that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not touching that. Like, yeah. no, I just need to avoid it. Yeah. And then the avoiding leads to more anxiety, which is just <laughs> so helpful. <laughs> but which is so like you need to do gradual exposure, which is actually what I do with a lot of kids when I'm working with the kids that have trauma and they avoid like. Nope, I never lived with other parents. Like, okay, well, we're just going to keep talking about this, you know? Like, you don't mention it, like, the whole time because you don't want them to get flooded. Yeah. And, like, not be able to think about anything else. And then they definitely won't come back to your office. But, like, dropping, thinking, having them think about certain things. Like, oh, yeah, when you lived with your other parents. Okay, maybe I'll say that one time the first session. Maybe I'll say it two times the next session. You know, and gradually talk about it more so that eventually it's like, then you can add more information mm -hmm. that they can avoid and then get used to all the way through. And so, basically, I had this loop tape, the most irritating thing. I think I still have it, actually. <laughs> um... And so it was a uh, answering machine tape where, like, Constantina had me, she's my therapist, write okay. out, like, the worst possible thing I could think of, like, in great detail. Yeah. Um, because then in the beginning, just, like, writing it was would make me anxious or just thinking it would make me anxious. Yeah. And then so he had me write pages and pages and pages and pages until like my reactivity or my anxiety about it went from like an 11 on a scale of one to 10 to like, uh, nah, yeah, 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 that used to bother me. And now like, nah, I've written it so many times that I really like just doesn't like my body's bored. Essentially, just, your body gets bored. There's um, the neuroplasticity book that I read. 
That was a big part of it, yeah. where one of the therapy techniques was representing it as something else. So if you have OCD and like, I should just check this door three times, you mm-hmm. say out loud to yourself ahead of time, well, I don't need to check the door, but my disorder does. Check the door. And you go, okay, you happy now? You start to treat it like this thing. Yeah, I know you think. I know you think the earth's going to spread apart from an earthquake. Let's write that down. and You happy? You think that can happen. So that's fascinating. It takes a lot more, like... Um, our exposure response prevention, it was like an hour and a half daily. Wow. So like I was there for like four months, but I was only on the OCD unit probably for like three and a half because I first they had me on the adolescent unit, which was just not appropriate for me. In a mental health facility. Yes. Yeah. Residential. And this treatment. is where, so you mentioned Constantina? Yes. Is, did she have an influence in like you deciding oh man she helped me so much this is what I want to get into is that part of it yeah part of it and then I have my therapist here in, in Duluth when I was younger she was also an LICSW so it's like both together um, but yeah I I definitely wasn't thinking oh I want to be a therapist when I was there during the four months <laughs> yeah, like two days in this is great this is fantastic <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even start, like, doing the actual... If I would have started doing the actual work I needed to when I first got there, I probably would have been out in, like, two months. Mm-hmm. But instead, I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't really know if that's going to work all that well. Like, nothing's really worked yet, so I don't know. I'll just do nothing, and then the insurance company will send me home because I'm not making any progress. Yeah. And so I did that for a while. That was no fun. And then I realized, like... Like, what am I, what, I'm afraid of failing? Like, <laughs> this already sucks. <laughs> so, like, even if I do fail, like, that, that's not going to be all that hard. But what, like, right now, my trajectory is, like, probably going home and living in my parents' basement for literally the rest of my life. <laughs> like, let's see if I fail, also probably where I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. So that's not all that different. I might as well just start doing these things because, yeah, these people, they do sound kind of, like wonky like these things like this will work like "Uh uh-huh yeah (laughs) you're paid to tell me it will work but then was that a big moment when that first revelation came in that was like oh yeah like yeah so um tig used to talk about you know oh nothing matters that can be terrifying and really depressing or it can be the most freeing thing like oh i can try whatever because right none of this really matters yeah And and so i was like yeah, for a long time I was like, nope, that I'm not, nope, I'm not doing it. Like you can't make me. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, okay, fine. Like let's just do it. And then it it wasn't a completely upward trajectory. Like it was de- there were definitely like yeah significant like declines. Um, and the declines, did you start getting better at recognizing, like, not to call them triggers, but, yeah. oh, I damn, I tumbled down this hill. Where yep. was my step? Where did I misstep? That, yeah, that part of it. Mm-hmm. Or also, like, you get better at using these skills. And so when you make a mistake, then you realize, like, hey, I didn't use them enough. Or, hey, I needed to use a different one. Or I needed to use a different, like, cognitive coping statements. You know, like, mm-hmm. I should have done that instead of this. And... When you're working on it 90 minutes a day, every day, you get, like, immediate feedback, too. And so yeah. it, it actually was super helpful because of the point I had gotten to, which was like, yep, nope, there's no way I'm, like, I'm just going to live in my parents' basement. And then they're <laughs> like, we're sending you to Kansas. And I'm like, oh, great, <laughs> because that sounds like a good idea. But, um, yeah, and then eventually it, it worked, and I was like what (laughs) how does this how does this work i don't even understand it yeah and then um so it was cognitive behavioral therapy and the exposure response prevention that was really helpful for me and i don't remember whether my therapist here in duluth had used that at all or if she did and i just was like bad whatever but like that having that every day like really really helped me be able to change the pattern of my thoughts and so like there would be times where I'd have 
really like random like oh i'm gonna throw up like i'd have like three weeks and be like do 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 like no thinking i'm gonna throw up and then be like oh my god i'm gonna throw up like, what that was weird i mean like because it's so sort of brush off that voice yeah, a certain oh, amount of it is is being like that's ridiculous what are you talking about like nor or not normal typical people have thoughts of like oh look the water's so beautiful look at this gorgeous cliff with all the trees i should jump off the cliff but the thing that anxious people do is they start ruminating about it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, do I really want to jump off the cliff? Why do I want to jump off the cliff? My life is wonderful. I shouldn't want to jump off a cliff. What does this mean? I need to figure out what it means before I can go on with my life. Like it yeah. just grabs on and is like, you need to worry about this. Yeah. And that OCD component in there as well. Because yeah. then the first part you go, why are you thinking that? And then yep. they start having the debate, why are you not? Right. You know, like, yes. And so, yeah, it was that, like, being able to hold on to, but then let go of, like, I think I'm going to throw up. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh-huh. Sure. Like, you're thought so that far, before. You're so far away from it now, from my perspective. And having met, and I've even seen, like, progression just in the time we've known each other. Yeah. And I've, there's probably two analogies at play here, but, like... The one we talked about where, like, you t- took a misstep and kind of tumbled down. So mm-hmm. it wasn't, but overall, the trajectory was, say, you start down in a ravine, but there's a pathway out, and it's mm-hmm. along the side of the canyon, So and it's a narrow path. And so if you make a misstep, you might tumble down the ravine. Yeah. And each step you go further, the distance you tumble, maybe you don't go all the way down to the ravine. Right. Maybe you just go a little way. Yeah. And then, as you get further along, the path widens out yeah. to the point where you might you might be so far away from a ravine that you're just like, I'm just on this wide path. Mm-hmm. And the way you see someone walking where they have like a cane or a crutch, but it never touches the ground, mm-hmm. you're like, they don't need that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, oh, I'm always aware that that ravine is a step or two away, or have you dropped the crutch? Like, how much do you think about it that like, yeah, I could tumble down a little bit. Or, like, I have the tools. Even if I fall off this trail some, I'm going to be right back on it. Um, I think it's difficult to say. It probably depends on the day. Each day. But overall, do you but, feel like you're on a wide path on nice, flat, safe ground? Um, I think what's helpful is that I've been doing well for many years yeah, and that my medication hasn't needed to change for many years Mm -hmm. Um, because that was also a huge piece of it like my medication was not right at all and so an entire summer I was just like going off the medication like slowly which was horrible and I didn't even have a summer and so like summers were are when I like come most alive and like live my there was no school it was sunny it was mm-hmm. nice outside like that was when I did my actual living and to not have that like and then psychotropic medications are just ridiculous in general because it's like okay well you have to try this for a, for a month to six weeks to see if it actually works yeah. but then you're two weeks in and you're like this sucks it's not <laughs> getting better at all like this is horrible and they're like but you gotta wait to a month or six weeks before we can take you off of it because it might start to work and you're yeah. like okay fine whatever and then you get to the like six week mark and they're like well let's try upping it and you're like, I'm sick of this. Like, yeah. I went the whole summer going off my medication, and now this is not working. And you're just upping it, and now I have to wait six more weeks. Like, this is going to be the rest of my life. This is horrible. <laughs> Which is at the point I was at in, like, October 2001, mm-hmm. where then I went to the residential treatment center, which then I had psychiatrists I was seeing one psychiatrist that was following me like basically daily if I needed anything and so like they gave me like the current like that the medicine I was on then is essentially the same as what I'm on now with like one tiny increase my freshman year of college that's great people bring up the or I think a common sort of um, like parallel is that and, and I do think this is a very helpful way to think about mental illness is that, well, people with diabetes need to take insulin. Yeah. It is just a way to chemically regulate your body so that it is functioning at its highest level. But I think sometimes they forget within that, like, the moment you start taking insulin, mm-hmm. your body is operating 
a lot better. Mm-hmm. But with mental illness, those periods that you you're going that you're describing right. of weeks at a time of like, nope, didn't get it, <laughs> didn't nail it with this one. Right. Then scale back down and wean yourself yeah. off and start a new one. Right. It's a really much more challenging. Yeah. But I think anyone to meet you now would be like, oh, you're definitely on uh, something that suits you. Something yeah. That, so that's great. Yeah. But, and I think there's a lot of different ways to think about medication on mental illness or when you have mental illness too. Like in the beginning, when I first went on medication when I was 11, they're like, okay, we're going to keep you on this. And then maybe over the summer we can go down. Mm-hmm. And we got to the summer and so we go down on it a little bit. And I'm like, God, I feel like crap. Like, why, why are we doing this? Like, I want to feel like kind of happy or whatever I was feeling before because that was better than this. And I was like, just, I will take the pill every day. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care because this is miserable even though it's (laughs) not all that. Yeah. Wow. And I was like, and I couldn't even swallow pills at that point. Like, I had to crush them up and put them in. It was disgusting. Like, cream. (laughs) Disgusting. And then they were small. Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, So, I was just like, fine. Like, if I need medication for the rest of my life like dude all right fine because like i'm tired of that and this is better Mm -hmm. and so i think that one thing that i do tell clients is that research can show or frequently shows that if you take medication and do therapy at the same time it can make it easier to learn and practice the coping skills while you are on the medication because the medication kind of helps like decrease it a little bit to to that there's actually like a window of tolerance that's actually like perfect for like gradual exposure and doing things and so like it can get you down to that instead of being so anxious that when you try the coping skills they don't work at all because you're too anxious Mm -hmm. and so there's that too there's lots of different ways but I just personally I've just been like medication is what I need unless they develop a cure or something and yeah. even then I'm not really sure about that but yeah if we had some sort of like uh, like optogenetics or something that mm-hmm. could regulate your brain and be like whoa 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 these neurons are not functioning or firing right. the way they should and then zap them a little bit yep. then that'd be different I, maybe that we have a world in front of us where that does exist where if nothing that else that would be nice it'd be just for the, every day having to like do you have the the pill thing with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, I just know what I take. Sometimes in the mornings I set it up. So I just set up the mornings because I'm horrible in the morning. So I just like, <laughs> take it and leave. And then, but at night, like I'm much better at night. So I just like count them out and mm-hmm. take what I need. But um, I should count them out and put them in a little pill thing so that I remember when I need more. But. I always talk about this idea that I think will eventually happen at, like, mausoleums and things like that, where, you know, you go to someone's tombstone, it's enormous, Yeah. And like, okay, cool, angel, or whatever the yeah. structure is on it, and then it just says, always loved, and, you know, and then a date and the name, you're mm-hmm. like, that's it? Like, I don't know, you know, if, and you can go into people's homes and see pictures, but I, this feels like a very right around the corner type of thing where you could go and touch your thumb to their picture frame Mm -hmm. and this static picture that you were seeing suddenly would it would just move and it would in the course of five seconds kind of show you their whole life some of it would be video but likely it would just be still frames just rapid fire through where Mm -hmm. you'd see where they traveled who they met what their smile looked like Mm -hmm. what they looked like at various ages of their life so you could go around like a mausoleum and just thumbprint see someone's life oh that's a pretty good life mm-hmm. and then on to the next one you yeah. just thumb each one of them do you think like if in your practice or in your work like if people came in and they could do that with your life and see it you'd want them to see it and they'd be like this is very helpful see where I'm coming from there's an empathy there's a familiarity or would you be like it's better if they just see me as this therapist they know nothing about well I think I felt differently when I started so when I started as a therapist in the area um I didn't want anyone to know because I didn't want you know anyone to think I mean like some people do think like oh you've had mental illness like then you're going to project all your stuff on me yeah. and you're not going to do a good job because you're going to be thinking about your own stuff 
And that can happen if you haven't processed your own stuff. Mm-hmm. It can happen even if you have processed your stuff, but I mean, like, if you've processed it and you're aware of your history and things like that, pretty much that's what, like, supervision is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't in the beginning because I didn't want um, anyone to think, like, I was okay with my mental illness, but I didn't know how okay other people would be and whether they'd be like, yeah, sure, my kid has anxiety, should go to you because you had anxiety. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be a therapist that people went to just because I had experienced it either because I didn't know if I was going to be a good therapist. Like, I wanted to be a good (laughs) therapist, but who knows, you know? And so it just felt like kind of a lot of pressure, too, Mm -hmm. um, because I was already anxious about doing a good job so I just kind of pushed that off and then um last November I did a show with um the PBS show yeah with Carolyn Phelps who does speak your mind which is a mental health program here in Duluth like television program um and she does like stories of hope and so I went on and mom and dad came with me and we just kind of talked about my story. Mm-hmm. And so now I didn't broadcast that I was doing it, but I have told friends that I have done it and people do watch TV. Um, and so people have seen it. I, it's not like I walk up to everybody and go, hey, guess what? I was on PBS <laughs> or anything like that. But if, you know, a lot of people Google their therapists and so if they Google me, they'll see that. And now, because I'm confident in my abilities and what I do, yeah, you can know about the most vulnerable time in my life. That's <laughs> like awesome. that's fine. Yeah. But but when I was starting out, like it was like, ah, like I'm already like, no, I don't know if I'm gonna do a good job because mm-hmm. when you're starting it's just like, I don't know anything. <laughs> well, um, you're not in your parents' basement. I'm not. You're gainfully employed doing I well. Am. And finish your Boston program. In November, yep. Have a master's degree. It feels like things are not only going well, but like much better than you Yeah. Had anticipated or prepared you know, like we're expecting. Yeah. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. Does that give you when, you know, maybe that voice lingers and comes around every now and again, do you just go, Oh shut up, I'm tired or <laughs> oh, you're wrong. I you know, I'm, I'm doing well. You know, can you look at that voice and be like face it and kind of go I mean I, you're wrong I'm doing great I think the the voice comes back at different times about different things like what I tell what I tell kids is anxiety is kind of like a Halloween costume so like anxiety can be like the ghost that comes up to your door and gets candy or it could be the scooby-doo that comes up to your house and gets candy or it could be the turtle that comes up to your house and gets candy (laughs) like anxiety morphs into different things like my stomach always hurts when i have anxiety and my mom would tell me over and over like this is your anxiety and i'd be like no but it's different than any way my stomach has ever felt before yeah Yes, anxiety is like that. Like, it tries to convince you it's different and that this is actually a real thing. Like, yeah. it's its job to try to trick you. Ah. And so that's that how I kind of talk about it. And, mm-hmm. like, that you need to practice, like, using your shield and being like, I'm not going to throw up. I never throw up. Or, you know, things like that. I try to use, like, the imagery stuff, especially with the really, like, five, six-year-olds, because they really get into it and the metaphor seems to help them too mm-hmm. but like anxiety is like a halloween costume like it can morph in any halloween costume that it wants to be yeah. and you're going to think it's not anxiety because it looks different but it's not different it's the same yeah and so i think that helps the parents too um the kids do usually get it, but I think it helps the parents because then they have a way to explain it to the kid later, too. Of like, well, remember, like, remember how you had a different Halloween costume last year than you did this <laughs> year? Like, remember, your anxiety is kind of like that. Like, you're still you in the costume, even though you were Scooby-Doo last year and you're a dinosaur this year. But 
like your, so your anxiety might feel different but it's the same nice. so like those kinds of things and I usually make them up like right on the spot it's kind of freaky <laughs> like oh that means you're feeling it you're in the flow state yes so I think I became a therapist to work with children with anxiety and depression and kind of got like funneled off into this like trauma focused kind of stuff mm-hmm. with like littler kiddos which I do enjoy but is difficult um and I think yeah but the little tiny anxious ones just like oh my heart breaks for them it's just like oh my gosh I was you once um I have a friend who has a little boy and he's anxious and she tells me stories and I'm like oh my gosh that sounds like when I was a flower girl tell me to tell you the story <laughs> and she's like okay or like she'll tell me something and I'll be like oh my gosh that sounds like when I was four and this happened to me and she's like you're giving me so much hope thank you and well, so your, I mean that's kind of the job it's yeah the, you're not a corrector necessarily but at right. least the yep. base level like yeah some hope so it's just like, yes, I understand you. I know what you're going through. I don't necessarily say that because, you know, they're like five or six. And that would be <laughs> kind of weird. But but like I can't and I can also this, this is weird, too. But like I can feel anxiety in others because when I start to get more anxious, it typically means that I'm either like in high stress crisis situations or the people around me are anxious like hmm. anxious enough that my anxiety goes up what are the i mean do they have tells are they sweating are they biting their nails or is it just something you can just feel it's just like the energy almost hmm. it's kind of weird yeah but it's also kind of cool yeah but when you tell people like hey your anxiety is really high right now sometimes people really don't want to hear that <laughs> you do that not at work excuse me stranger not at work but i do that at home sometimes oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, my parents yeah. don't always love me for it, but <laughs> neither does my sister sometimes. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, the anxiety uh, gene or trait is a fascinating one to watch throughout any given family. Yes. Um, well, I think you're doing fantastic. Thank this is, you. This is any like closing thoughts? Any things you want to impart on a the youth, or maybe a parent that's dealing with a child that's like they just quite they don't quite understand what to do or how to fix it. Um, I think just as a therapist in general, what I try to tell people is like, if you're not comfortable with your therapist, like give it a little bit, but also if you're not comfortable, find someone that you fit with. Because if you base your whole therapy experience off somebody you don't like connect with, like that's not really a valid experience. Like you need someone that you can trust and like feel like is there for you and can empathize. Cause if you're like, man, I'm not really sure about you. There's no way that you're going to do the hard stuff that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, it's good to hang in for like a couple sessions, make sure. Cause you know, first impressions are never typically like what they need to be, especially because we have to ask like, 8,000 questions to get like a diagnosis before we can actually start treatment Mm -hmm. but like if you're like "Eh, not feeling it like find somebody else because like if I am your therapist and you're like yeah I'm not feeling it I don't want you to just like stick with me because you were put with me because I had room yeah like if you tell me like hey I'm not feeling it great we can talk about it I can find somebody else at the agency or we can find somebody somewhere else because therapy should not be like, oh my God, I have to go to therapy. Like, yes, it sucks because you have to work on stuff that is hard. But also it shouldn't be like, oh, I hate that lady or I hate that guy. Yeah. Like, because if you just don't like going and seeing them or like their voice is annoying or whatever it is, like you're not going to want to go. And so if you actually need therapy... It's nice to make it, like, you might not want to go, but also if you kind of like the person that's there, like, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I did not want to go. My parents got divorced and I was two, two or three. Mm-hmm. But the, I really, I can remember the therapist a little bit. She let me play Candyland a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be like, I don't want to go. And they'd be like, yep. what about Candyland? I'm like, all right, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> 
I have so many awesome toys in my office. It's a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, I'll bet. Any, I feel like that's a hallmark of being like a, a thoughtful therapist. Mm-hmm. Kids come in like, can I, can I play with that? Yeah. I'm like, sure. Did. You're glad you took the bait, buddy. Go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca Oaks, this was lovely. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Yes, absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned, I will do my best to share a link of that PBS episode, although if you just search her name, you can probably find it. The best place to find those things is Twitter, space underscore cave. Uh, the show now has an Instagram, at space cave podcast, and um, we'll show images from the beers, the guests, some behind the scenes things. It's not much, but uh, I'll try to do a better job of getting those up. You can always email pings at thespacecave.com if you have guests or uh, topic suggestions or anything like that, beer or music or otherwise. And speaking of music, Tom Lettieri, I hope I'm saying that correctly, reached out a while ago and said, hey, um, I enjoy the music you play. I started a Spotify playlist. So if you go to Spotify and search Space Cave, you can hear not only these songs, but a lot of other songs that he's added that he feels uh, adds an of a similar aesthetic. So I got to start checking those out myself. Maybe borrow, pilfer from his list a little bit. Always looking for good A&R people. Dan helps out quite a bit. Uh, if you have songs that you'd like or think that they'd fit with the show, feel free to email pings at the Space Cave. Although Tom did suggest he was a robot. So who knows if you can reach out and get in touch with him. But robot's pretty good at um, compiling and configuring lists and things like that. So Space Cave on Spotify. It was a weird coincidence because uh, Brian Gutman had asked a while ago if there was something like that. And I thought, yeah, I don't think so. And I don't have the energy or, and or I don't know that I want to put that effort in. But So I'm glad that Tom did. Thanks for doing that. And uh, if you're a fellow Spaceburger, check it out. I'm glad he likes the music. And if you want to support the show, obviously you can do that through Patreon. I know I mentioned that quite a bit. It's the only ad on the show. The show is made possible ad-free because of contributions from listeners just like you. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash David Huntsberger. Get some little bonus things. I'll send you a sticker depending on what tier you're in. You get access to bonus episodes each month. The one up now is um, from uh, Sheila and Davi, which was just a couple weeks ago. So check that out and help the show. Those of you who do support it, thoroughly appreciate it. Okay, well here's another song to add to Tom's collection on Spotify. This is from a band I really like. I'd only really heard kind of like one of their songs before, and then I heard this one, and I was like, man, I like that. And it turned out it was the same band that had another song. The other song of theirs I like is called Corporeal. Corporeal? Is that how I say it? I don't know. We've played it on the show before. I probably had the same confusion as to how to pronounce it then. This one's a little easier to pronounce. It's from Broadcast. It's called Come On, Let's Go. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. You won't find it by yourself. You're gonna need some help and you won't fail with me around. Come on, let's go. I will tell you if you change and who's been saying things it's hard to tell. you